Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Gramier Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at gramier.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Gramier Church of Christ. If you'd like to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be spending some time there tonight. Ephesians chapter 5, it is good to see everyone here this evening. I know we had a a big group that got to welcome our youth interns that we introduced today, Tyler Thomas and Anna Catherine Lemons, and we're thankful to have them with us, and they've got a full summer uh, lined up, and so I hope that you'll uh, take time to get to know them, but also just want to plant uh, a seed as well that I know JD has mentioned having a, uh, a sign-up sheet available uh, that throughout the summer you can sign up for a day to uh, take our youth interns to, to lunch or invite them over to your home for a meal, uh, and that'll be a good way too to get to know them throughout the summer. So just be thinking about some uh, opportunities to do that. Uh, we are excited about a lot that's happening with our youth group. Uh, this coming Wednesday night is going to be sort of the final uh, celebration of ITC with the cookout that uh, is done in conjunction with Carmack Boulevard. Uh, and just as, as a reminder, we've had some really great things happen as a result of all the ministry that's been taking place uh, with ITC. Uh, we had a young lady uh, just a few weeks ago uh, Lorraine Carpenter, who put Christ on in baptism, that we met as a result of ITC. And there are several others that have become part of the, the youth group and are involved in a lot of the things our youth group is doing. And so it's really exciting to see those connections that are made. And so I hope that uh, you'll be praying that we can continue to make some connections and to grow in those relationships and ultimately uh, share God's word with young people. Well, Jonathan already mentioned the camps we have coming up. Just as a reminder, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday night, the young men who are part of Future Minister Camp will be leading our classes, and we'll kind of have them divided up in different places. There'll be some that'll be speaking here, and some in the fellowship hall, and uh, we'll have that all arranged, but just to let you know, uh, we'll have something a little bit different, but it is a golden opportunity to encourage a lot of these young men. I'm excited. We have a lot. It may be, I'd have to go back and look, but we may have the most uh, participation we've had from, uh, from young men at Graymere that we've had uh, in the last several years. And so we're going to get to encourage a lot of our young men here as they prepare, uh, but also from all over the place. Uh, it's just it's so neat to see uh, the effect that this camp has had on so many. And uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is a conversation I had not too long ago with Adam Knowles. Adam preaches now for the Maple Hill Church of Christ in Lebanon. Uh, this is the congregation where Catherine grew up and her parents are, are still members there. And so uh, as Adam came there and as I was getting to know him and talking to him, he'd preached uh, before that in Missouri. Uh, and he described coming to this camp, this future minister camp, and saying, I came when I was in high school, and I, I started thinking, you know, I think I might want to, I might want to do ministry someday. And just to see, uh, obviously, I mean, we'd love to take credit for everybody that had that idea. But chances are they were thinking about it. That's why they were here. So we can't take credit for all that. But we can say this was a real encouragement uh, to a lot of people who are in ministry today. And so we're excited about that, and and hope that you'll continue uh, to encourage these young men. 
Uh, then, of course, we'll have a big group go to uh, Murray Christian Camp, uh, and that's going to be a great blessing. Uh, and then Vacation Bible School that's coming up. I mentioned this last week, but I also want to highlight something else. Uh, our theme for this year's Vacation Bible School is going to be Nights at the Museum, where the Bible comes to life. And one of the things we'll have set up in the small auditorium is an actual Bible museum. Uh, Bob Stansel, who preaches in Oregon, will bring through a lot of the artifacts that he's collected and some of the models of different cities and biblical areas. And so we're going to have a time before VBS on Saturday where adults can walk through the museum that our children are going to be able to walk through during VBS. And so you'll be able to see some of those things. Uh, he will be teaching our combined uh, Sunday Bible class that next morning, and so he'll share some of those items uh, in our Bible class as well. But just to, again, plan another idea in your mind, it's great to be able to look through that museum, but we want to do it on Saturday because there's something else that's happening on that Saturday, which is a VBS work day. And so if you were so inspired by looking through the museum that you wanted to keep walking down the hallway, we could probably put you to work doing some decorating. And so I'm just going to put that in there if you want to carve out some time on Saturday to do that. Uh, it is going to be exciting. We'll have some decorations uh, here. One of the neat things that we'll be doing with our learning centers is several of our Sunday morning Bible classes are taking over some of the decorating for some of those learning centers. And so we're excited about all those who volunteered to be a part of that. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Registration is already available. And so you can go online and you can register. Uh, and there are a few more questions than there have been in the past for registration but it's really going to help us as we organize. And so it doesn't take very long. Uh, I was able to test that out this past week, but that's, that's going to be great for us as we organize and hopefully uh, increase our ability to have more and more people involved with it. So there's a lot to be prayerful about, a lot to be mindful of, and so I hope we can uh, keep all those things on our prayer list. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I have never been good at gardening, at helping plants grow. Uh, there was a period of time where uh, my parents tried to have a garden when we lived in Arkansas. I don't remember all of this, but I'm told that as soon as anything began to sprout, I would pull that out of the ground and come take it to them just to show them what was happening. Didn't quite understand the way gardening works, and so I haven't really done much more since then. Uh, sometimes it's hard to keep plants alive. But I do find it interesting the way people who are good with gardens and with plants and you understand uh, the way soil cultivation works, I find it interesting the way that they can do things. And one of the areas I read about was a group of individuals in Japan, uh, in specifically in a place called Hamatsu City, that have a specific tradition that's been handed down for decades of the way they grow some specific melons that they have in that area. They have a one-tree-one-fruit method. So for every sapling that comes, they only leave one fruit on each sapling that assures all the nutrition is going to be flowing towards that one fruit. They use a certain kind of soil. It's not typical. It's a clay-based soil that they cultivate in a rice field and bring it in. They monitor exactly how much watering is done. There are times you water, and then there are times you withhold water because you want the plant to acquire more glucose, and that's going to change the way that it develops. Uh, they're watered by hand. 
have certain types of special greenhouses. Some of them have a specific kind of, of polish to make sure that the netting looks just right on it because that's part of its appeal. Sometimes uh, you can find pictures of uh, little covers they place over them as they grow, look like little hats to make sure that the netting looks just right and that uh, it's going to have the right kind of appearance. And this is something that takes all kinds of, you know, at least three months of just a certain cultivation for just one plant, one melon that's going to grow. They've been trained in a specific process. And some of the things as I read about them sort of sound different to me. It's not anything I've ever seen. It's not anything I've been familiar with, but it has struck me that in order to get a specific result, there were certain actions that had to be taken, and they've even worked it out to a science of what day you do this and what day you do that. Most things in life that are worthwhile, most things in life that have that kind of, of intrinsic value take that sort of time. If we really want to bear fruit, it takes time, it takes effort. And it's interesting how easy it is for us to understand that, not just in agriculture, but in every aspect of life. We know if we want to develop a skill, it's probably going to take some time. We wanted to acquire a proficiency in a certain area. We're going to have to have some time and some dedication. It just doesn't happen by accident. And yet I think somehow in our spiritual lives, we're often tempted to think that my spiritual life will just sort of automatically grow. I go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I shouldn't have to do much else. Things should just kind of grow. Things should just sort of develop. And so while in every other aspect of life we know there are specific actions I have to take, sometimes we resist that when it comes to spiritual matters. The reason I bring that up is when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we've been going through this series in Ephesians where we're thinking about our identity in Christ. And there are a couple of elements that we find in Ephesians chapter 5 uh, that are, are important for us, not just to think about the life we're going to live, but also the light that we're going to shine. And we've been singing about uh, and focusing on light and walking in the light. And I'm so thankful that Carrie led those songs to help us focus because that's a lot of what Ephesians 5 is about. And it gets very practical. I was mentioning earlier, it's kind of interesting when you try to preach a, a passage of Scripture where that just specifically says, hey, don't do this. You know, if you're going to preach it, you could say, well, looks like we shouldn't do this. You know, and just move on. It's very straightforward because there are ethical commands that are part of living a Christian life. It doesn't just happen. It's not something I just sort of flow through the path of least resistance. Paul tells us, no, there's some specific things that have to take place. But all of these ethical ways of living flow out of our understanding of Jesus. And so we've been envisioning what Ephesus would have looked like as we think about a modern reconstruction of, of how the city would have been sprawling and what the Christians would have had to do as they're sort of facing against an, an overwhelming tide of a culture that doesn't really uh, put forward or support what they believe and as we start in, we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 5, although a lot of the specific instructions really get started in verse 3. But if you remember where we've been in Ephesians chapter 4, he's talked about, we've talked about all the different ways we're supposed to put off the way we have been living and put on this new life. And so building on that, when we get to verse 1, thinking about the forgiveness of Christ, we read, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, 
just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's interesting that we can start off with uh, verses that are so positive, right? That are so encouraging that you say, we're beloved children. We're walking in love just as Christ gave himself for us. But understanding the love of God comes with obligations. And we see that. We see that all throughout Jesus' ministry. For example, in John's gospel, when we see Jesus feeding the 5,000, here's an incredible moment where people are blessed. It's exciting. People are really looking forward to what's going to happen next. And then following this incredible sort of mountaintop spiritual experience, Jesus gives some of the hardest teaching that they would hear about what it means that he's the bread of life and how they need to live. And a lot of people left. You have a, something really beautiful that's followed by some serious instruction. And both of those go together. And I think our human tendency is sometimes, I'd like to look at verses 1 and 2, and I'd like to focus on what God has done for me, but maybe I don't want to spend so much time on this uh, language about wrath of God on sons of disobedience. That sounds pretty negative. I don't think I want to get into that. But Scripture reminds us those things go together. In Jesus' ministry, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James and John, this incredible experience where he is not only transfigured, but the voice of God comes from above confirming you need to listen to him. And what happens when they go down the mountain? They're back into confusion with a man who's brought his child who's possessed by a demon. The apostles can't cast it out. There's confusion. People are upset. There's reality, right? That's the way... It is to live the Christian life. We have the beauty of the sacrifice God has made for us, but we've also got the obligation for how we're going to live as a result of that. And so he describes the kind of love, the way Christ loved us is the kind of love we're supposed to walk in. We walk as children of love. We're beloved children. Uh, we found that in the very first verse of this chapter, and we're called to live that way. We've talked a little bit through Ephesians about the progress uh, that you see uh, in some of the verbs that are used. Here we're again focusing on the walk of Christians. We've talked about where Christians are seated in the heavenly places, right? The, that we have a special place with God. We're called to walk in a certain way. When we get to Ephesians 6, we're supposed to stand in our armor of God as we're battling against Satan. And so we've got this progression, but here we have our walk, our life, that is supposed to be imitating Jesus. And it's interesting when we think about being imitators of God, specifically in verse 1. Uh, imitation for us today has kind of a negative connotation. Uh, if something is an imitation, that means, well, it's not the real thing. Or if someone imitates someone else, we often see that as being negative. But that's not the way this language resonated in the first century. 
In fact, we see 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1 where Paul would remind the church of Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Rabbis talked about imitating God as did Christians in the first century. Even philosophers like Plato talked positively about imitating God. So this is a, a positive uh, affirmation of how we ought to live our lives, that we're imitators of him. And then notice the description in verse 2, that he gave himself up in offering and to sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When you look through the Old Testament and you see sacrifices referred to, a lot of times we see a connection between a sacrifice and an aroma that is pleasing to God. Now, that sounds a little strange to us. We don't live in a world where we make a lot of sacrifices. I can't imagine that offering an animal sacrifice would have smelled all that great to the people around. But the idea was it was a pleasing aroma to God, that God's the one that we're trying to impress. This morning, we mentioned God being the one who's evaluating. That's uh, who we are seeking to offer a sacrifice to. So a sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to God because it was an aroma of obedience, that we're doing what God has called us to do. It's that kind of sacrifice that Jesus is for us, a fragrant aroma. That for all of the sacrifices that existed in the Old Testament that were described as pleasing to God, there was none that was like the once for all sacrifice of Jesus that's pleasing to God, a fragrant aroma. But notice, understanding that sacrifice doesn't lessen our responsibility to live the way God wants us to live. At no point does Paul say, don't worry, because Jesus is the ultimate fragrant aroma for God, and so as long as that's covered, you don't have to worry about anything else. No, the contrary is true. He says, no, because of the way God has loved you, now immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Now, you might be thinking, well, Paul did just name these impurity, immorality, and greed. It's not that you're not allowed to say the word. It's that it shouldn't even be a part of your vocabulary, these kinds of things. These are broad words that are used here to describe all kinds of impure acts or sexual immorality, uh, all kinds of greediness. He said that doesn't even have a place. It's just not even something that should be named among you. If I find myself asking a question in my life, well, how much of this can I justify? How much of a certain action can I rationalize? Ephesians 5 reminds us, you know, there's some things that just don't have a place in our lives. They just shouldn't be named among us. Not only are we called to imitate Christ, we're also called to imitate the purity of his life. The reason in verse 2 we have a fragrant aroma or an offering to God is because Christ lived a sinless example for us, a pure life, a life that faced every kind of temptation as we face and yet chose to glorify God each and every time, giving us an example of how to live. And so wanting to live a pure life and wanting to make decisions that are right is not a matter of, of legalism. It's, it's not a matter of saying, oh, I think I'm better than someone else or I'm holier than thou. Wanting to live a life that's pure is a response to the love of Christ, not a response to legalism. 
he lists these terms of impurity and immorality and greed in the same order in Colossians. And so we get the sense that these were common things that had to be addressed then and have to be addressed now. He also goes on to say that when he talks about uh, the filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, those aren't fitting. Notice what he gives instead of that. He said, instead of that, spend your time in thanksgiving. In chapter 4, we see that. We have uh, someone who is stealing. He should steal no longer. Now he needs to work with his hands. Now there's something else to do. Here we see the same thing in chapter 5. If you've got filthy or obscene language that's happening, if you have uh, chattering, your translation may use that term. It's, it's almost like just meaningless talk. Just things that, uh, that don't really go anywhere or do anything. Just sort of chattering. Uh, the kind of coarse jesting. Uh, this is not someone who is, is, is funny or humorous or, or quick-witted. It's, I think it's good to laugh. We need to be laughing. It's good to have a sense of humor. It's good to be able to laugh at ourselves. But this is coarse kind of jesting. This is the kind of thing that we shouldn't be laughing at. In fact, I think one of the tools that Satan can use to desensitize us to certain actions is by first getting us to laugh at those things or maybe to laugh at the people who are bothered by those things. And then when that becomes something that's laughable, then it's not as big a deal. And so that kind of course, just, that's just, that's not what we do. Instead, Paul says, you give thanks. And so when I'm tempted to go in a certain direction, I want to substitute that by giving thanks. I think there's some power in that, in, in shaping the way that we live. I can remember being at a, a panel several years ago now on a, a missions panel at a, at a gathering of a lot of different Christians. And one of the individuals on the panel had a child who was serving as a missionary, adult child that was serving as a missionary uh, in a country uh, with a predominantly Muslim population. And so someone raised their hand in that uh, mission setting and asked the question and said, well, why would you, you know, why, why would we care about this specific group of people if they've shown that they hate us or they want to hurt us? Now, he was conflating, I think, uh, the idea of specific people who have, have taken terrorist actions and done things and that should concern all of us, but sort of saying that applied to everybody in a certain area. And he just went on, and sort of the more he talked, the more upset he got about things that were happening. And I understand being upset, but uh, he got a little carried away with it. And so one of the individuals on the panel just stopped and said, could I ask you something? He said, I have a child right now that's on the mission field that's seeking to convert the kinds of, of people who believe what you're talking about. He said, the next time that you're tempted to think something negative about those people, could you just replace that with a prayer for that mission team that they could reach some of those people? You could have heard a pin drop in the audience, but I've thought about that a lot since then. That's a really powerful way to say when I'm tempted to do one thing, you know, I need to substitute that with something that I know is spiritually beneficial. And so if I'm looking at this list and I'm tempted to use either the kind of language or just to say the kinds of things that are there or to indulge in those kinds of things, 
Paul is reminding me, maybe I should just stop right in my tracks and I should just give God thanks for what's going on in my life. Maybe that'll help me refocus. And so we're supposed to live as children of love. But then notice what we read picking up in verse 7. He talks about the sons of disobedience. And he says, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There's that verb again, walk. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now as we think about what it means to live as children of love, we're also reminded the importance of living as children of light. And there's some language specifically here that I think is, is significant for us to point out. We're used to the idea of light versus darkness, right? We might think of 1 John chapter 1, when you walk in the light as he is in the light. We're used to that kind of language. But notice how it's described here when it says, verse 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Why do we walk as children of light? Because that's now who we are. It's that same kind of, you've put this off, now you've put this on. You've put off the darkness, now you're walking as children of light. Paul doesn't say, you should try to think about becoming a little more like someone who walks in the light. He doesn't say, maybe you could focus on ways that you could possibly model your life after people who walk in the light. He says, you are light. That's who you've become. And so the way you live flows out of who you are. It's not that you're living a certain way in order to achieve a certain status. It's when you become a child of God, now you are light. You've left that life of darkness behind. Now you live differently. I think sometimes we forget that how we live needs to flow out of who we are. And that maybe how we live, how we walk, tells us about who we are. And maybe he points out some things that could be changed. Now the contrast he gives here of darkness, being partakers with darkness, and then uh, he talks about uh, it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. There's just something about uh, darkness that gives cover to things that we shouldn't be doing. How many of us have had, had parents, I know I had, had parents that were growing up that you're familiar with the statement of, uh, well, you know, nothing good's going to happen after whatever the curfew was. You don't need to be out after that. There's nothing good happening out there. When you have darkness, that's a cover for things. We're even shocked today if someone does something that's criminal in broad daylight. Why are we shocked by that? usually something we associate with the darkness. And so he's saying, you're not living in darkness anymore. You are light. It's similar to the way he would talk to the church in Colossae and talk about Christ who is your life. He'd say, when Christ who is your life is revealed. Not just when Christ who is someone that you've learned about and that you're interested in. Not just Christ who's someone that you've read about and you want to kind of find out more about. No, Christ who is your life who defines how you live. That changes things. 
If you look at a survey today of uh, religion in the United States, there's a category that you'll often find, like a Pew Research poll or a Barna poll, where they'll talk about how many adherents there are. So you have people who identify as Christian, and then you have kind of adherents, and then you might have, well, here are practicing Christians. There are a lot of categories that Scripture doesn't really give us. Scripture gives us a category of saying, you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are light. You are walking in the light. It's not just, well, I want to sort of be halfway in and kind of say in my mind, intellectually, I'm okay with Christianity, but I'm not sure I'm going to practice it. That's not really something we read about in Scripture. What we read about in Scripture is going from darkness to light and living that way. How we live flows out of who we are. And that when things are exposed to the light, that's the only way to deal with challenges. I've heard it said before, we're only as sick as our secrets. One of the things that darkness does is it keeps things secret that could benefit from being exposed to the light. And so sometimes when we're ashamed of something, what we want to do is never talk about it, never think about it, never mention it, never pray about it, never tell our friends about it, never confess our sins, and yet we're reminded here that what the light can do, it can shine light on some things. And maybe those things are, are shameful, and maybe those things are disgraceful, but we're human beings. We, we've done things that are disgraceful and shameful. When we bring them to the light, we're allowing God to deal with those, whether it's forgiving us of sins, whether it's getting guidance from His Word on how to avoid living that kind of lifestyle. Living as children of light means we're taking what it'd be nice to keep secret, but we're bringing it to God and allowing God to deal with it. Are we doing what it takes to bear the kind of fruits that we could. Deeds of the darkness, Paul describes here, are unfruitful. A life that bears fruit is probably going to take some work. It's probably going to take us doing some things intentionally in order to bear that kind of fruit. And Paul spells some of these out here. Love and light should characterize the way that we live. It may be tonight you need to begin that journey. Maybe you need to respond to the light. We've been singing, shine, Jesus, shine. It may be that sending His Son into the world as God gives us that opportunity is now a time for you to say, I'm going to respond to that gift. I'm going to put Christ on in baptism and walk in the light. It may be that there's something in your life that needs to be addressed. This might not be the only chance you have to respond to the invitation from God, but I can't think of a better one than when you've got brothers and sisters in Christ right here who'd love to pray with you and pray for you. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand, as we all sing together, as we all sing together.